You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Good morning, everybody. I'm really happy to get to be with you today. Um, I know everyone's complaining about the cold right now, and I'm certainly not going to do any differently. I don't care how many things I'm supposed to do without grumbling or complaining. Um, But the excitement of getting to be in God's word with you all uh, is very warming uh, to me, and it adds at least one digit uh, to the current temperature right now. On which side, I'm not sure, but uh, that remains to be seen. Well, today marks the end of our four-week series through Paul's letter to the Philippians. We've been going through the letter together as a church, and I have to say, Philippians is one of my favorite books in the New Testament, and I've personally loved going through this book as an entire narrative alongside you all. Um, alongside um, with sermons from Nick and Alan and Russ preceding this one. Uh, Because if we're honest, a lot of the verses in this letter get taken out of context because we think they're more impactful to hear that way. Like, I think we've heard that from almost everyone who's taught during this series, in fact, right? Alan told us Philippians 2 was this greatest hits of encouragement. And I think Russ said Philippians 3 last week was the greatest hits of, like, sick burns or call-outs Um, And funnily enough, I actually got to speak on this exact section of Philippians about two years ago in summer church, Uh, and because I'm a huge narcissist, I went back and listened to that and reviewed my notes in preparation for this morning, and I was entertained to find out that I said more or less the same thing about this chapter. It's the greatest hits of Bible verses. Like, there's a lot of hashtagable, sound-bitey stuff in this letter. And sure, when you take a verse like, I can do all things through him who strengthens me out of context, it sounds pretty great, right? Put it on a motivational t-shirt. And there is some of that spirit in Paul's words. But then we look at the context we're in right now, in the U.S. in 2021. And then we try to read things like, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Or I rejoice and I'm glad with you, therefore you should also be rejoiced and be glad and rejoice with me, excuse me, or do nothing without grumbling or complaining, uh, like I alluded to before. You kind of want to look at Paul and just sort of take him by the shoulder and be like, dude, read the room, all right? (laughs) But when we zoom out the microscope and look at the letter as a whole, we see Paul doesn't live in like the motivational TikTok we thought he did, right? He and the Philippians live in a place of disarray and fear and uncertainty. Paul himself, as he reminds us a few times throughout the letters, is in prison right now. He's writing this from prison, and he is completely uncertain whether he's going to leave his imprisonment alive. There's infighting among the church in Philippi. Um, It was proved a marked distraction from the preaching of the word of God. And of course, this wasn't an especially long time after Jesus' own ministry. Um, It's a following Christ didn't have anywhere near the level of comparative, at least, cultural acceptance that we enjoy today. And that had a very tragic impact on the lives and the livelihood of believers of the time. And so having gone through the whole thing, we can understand now that Paul isn't here to motivate necessarily or to sensationalize or to distract. He is here essentially to teach. We can look at Paul as something of like a high school teacher or college professor and the church in Philippi, we can look at them as sort of his AP students or like his James Scholar students. They were kind of next level, ready to handle messages that were for more mature believers. 
And some scholars even suggest that Paul's language throughout the letter was more informal and even like teasingly sarcastic at times compared to his other letters. There was a friendliness in this relationship, a rapport, like Paul had been their teacher for many, many years, and there was a lot of mutual love in this relationship. So we know that his words here aren't empty platitudes, and they're also not reserved for people who don't quite have things figured out for themselves spiritually. Mature believers who were nevertheless dealing with some very difficult problems. Maybe that describes you as well today. And so Paul, being the teacher that he is, shifts from explaining to them realities of the gospel, as he has in the letter up to this point, and begins helping them to apply these things to the difficult times they find themselves in. And if we're going to borrow from the world of, say, math pedagogy, Philippians 4 moves from theorems and formulas to word problems. And formulated as a word problem, Philippians 4 might look something like this. Right? Given an imprisoned apostle, div divided leadership within the church, and an environment that promotes selfishness over following Christ. Solve for X, where X equals centering your life in Christ. And then like, I don't know, the two column geometry proof thing, maybe, I don't know, it's been a while since I've taken a math course. But Paul wouldn't be a very good teacher if he just left his students to figure out this difficult problem on their own. So in this passage, he provides several challenges, several sub-problems to the church. The thinking here is, if they can master the steps to solving these in the middle of turmoil, uh, the notion of centering your life in Christ might start to make a little bit more sense. And these sub-problems will lead us to one larger conclusion that I want to unpack with you this morning. Inward joy leads to outward direction. Inward joy leads to outward direction. Finding joy, not a worldly joy, but a, a broader, other-centered joy in your own life gives us an outward-centered and other-centered focus in our actions and our thoughts and our attitudes. And once we have that, Paul says, we begin moving forward to claiming Christ as the center of our lives. We're going to dive into exactly what it means by that, but first, uh, I'm going to pray real quick. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for the, the model that you've given to us through Paul um, and his church and his admonishments and guidance and encouragement for the church, Lord. Um, help Paul's words to encourage us uh, this morning as we navigate our own difficult circumstances and as, as we come to fully understand um, this wonderful but sometimes challenging um, letter in your word, God. Um, and uh, may what I say today be, be helpful to the people who are listening, and if there's anything that isn't, Lord, may it. Um, be taken away um, and not heard by the people watching this. And may our reflections on Paul and may what we take out of your word help um, us to further the work of the kingdom going forward in our own lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So inward joy leads to outward direction. But joy, as we mentioned, seems to be kind of a hard thing to come by these days, right? But nevertheless, it's a pretty big deal for Paul, right? In Philippians alone, the words joy or rejoice or similar words appear 16 times, four of them in this chapter, by the way. So if we take a look at our passage for today, we're going to be starting in Philippians 4, chapter 4, verse 4, if you've got your Bible um, and you want to be following along. It's right, in the, it's right in the beginning of Philippians. There's a brief acknowledgement of some of the division in the church that Paul leads into. 
He's kind of coming out of where Russ left us last week about claiming citizenship in heaven rather than affiliation with your worldly citizenship, right? And then from verse 4, he continues, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So there's two or three of them right there at the start, right? But let's pull out a minute to a, to a big picture before we go any further. So this last section of Philippians consists of a series of exhortations from Paul. Now, exhortation isn't a word we typically use in our everyday language, so we should establish that an exhortation is basically a constructive challenge to a higher way of living. Right? It's one person recognizing an area of growth or improvement in another person or party, usually one with whom there's already a bond or a relationship, might be a friend or a loved one, and walking alongside that person to help identify that area for growth and lovingly encourage them to grow in that area. And Paul's first exhortation here to the church, again after addressing the disunity affecting it, is rejoice. Again I say, rejoice. And while we're at it, rejoice isn't a word we use every day either, if we're honest. And uh, for those who got to go through the passage together in your small groups this past week, you might have gotten to have a discussion about what comes to mind for each of you when you think of the word rejoice, or what it means for you to rejoice, or try to figure out at the very least what Paul might have meant by that. Because dude seems pretty insistent on it, even just now. Right? I mean, he says it twice. He knows that having joy would be difficult for the Philippians. He's not ignorant of that. In fact, they might not even know what it means to rejoice, given their circumstances. And again, you may plan to find a point of sympathy with them there, too. But we can understand at the very base level, rejoice, obviously enough, means to have joy. Right? At its, in its simplest form, Paul's instruction to rejoice is a way of telling the church, I know things are hard right now. I know there's disunity and confusion, but everything that's about to come after this, everything I'm about to hit you with for the rest of this letter, depends on us agreeing that we're going to start from a place of joyfulness. If we can't agree that rejoicing is our point of reference here, and that that's where we're going to start all other avenues of thought or action, none of the rest of what I'm about to say can happen. So assuming joyfulness as a point of reference. So now we might be tempted to ask ourselves then, um, and perhaps a little bit disingenuously, so Paul, does that mean we just bury our heads in the sand? Right? Do we turn a blind eye to hurt that we may be experiencing or to hurt of others for this abstract thing called joy? And as they say in the mean world, well, yes, but actually no. There's this foundational component of joyfulness for Paul, and that component is contentedness, specifically contentedness in Christ. He makes this key distinction between being happy on an emotional level and being content, and recognizes that sometimes that means acting against how our feelings might dictate we should act. If you've been following along with us in Philippians over the past few weeks, in fact, like we've seen a recurring theme of Paul being more or less indifferent towards circumstances uh, when he admonishes the church in the way that he does. And the message here in Philippians 4 is something a little bit more nuanced than just suck it up. 
or being dismissive, but there is an element of trusting and needing to trust that things are going to be okay if we simply let ourselves rest in a state of contentedness and submit to that. We're called explicitly not to be anxious about anything, but make our requests known to God with thanksgiving through prayer and supplication. And after we've done this, Paul says, after we've fulfilled this condition, we are promised the peace of God. But Paul offers this as more than just sort of a patch-up, band-aid situation, right? It's more than, oh, just pray when you're anxious and everything will be fine. The wording here is, offer your requests and adopt a spirit of thankfulness. That's the part that gets missed a lot. Adopt a spirit of thankfulness. I know it took me several times reading through this before I stopped viewing this as, again, just dismissiveness from Paul. And the practical point of this became clear, which is this. We need to pray as if we've already received what we've asked for. And I'm sure that's come up in just countless sermons that that's what that means. But have you ever taken the time to really think about that? Like, can you imagine doing that in your everyday life? Like, can you imagine what impressions you would leave on other people if you asked other people for things as if you had already received them? It's crazy, right? Like, I'll go to a burger order, like, order a burger at a fast food joint. Be like, hey, okay, so I'll take a bacon cheeseburger with pickles and lettuce, and yo, man, thanks so much for making such a fire burger. Y'all are real ones. I love you guys so much. Mm-hmm. Like, that'd be weird, right? Like, first of all, wow, no pressure. All right. But secondly, like, you know perfectly well they're going to forget the pickles, because they always forget the pickles. It's, it's an inevitability of life that if you order a burger with pickles, they're going to forget the pickles. How can I be joyful? Or even content about a burger I don't have. Or more seriously, how can I be joyful or even content about a circumstance or a light at the end of the tunnel, which I have not yet seen? Well, the short answer is we should be thankful for the circumstance. But that's not to say that the circumstance gives us thankfulness. And, you know, as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of a personal story that kind of gave me a point of reference for what Paul might be talking about here. Um, By the way, as an aside, one day I will get through talking about something without mentioning movies, but today is not that day. I love movies. I love going to movie theaters. But that didn't always used to be the case, right? So for the first, like, ten years of my life, I was actually terrified of movie theaters. I'd still, like, I'd still watch them at home pretty frequently, but there was just something about sitting in a completely dark room with a bunch of people I didn't know on a big old screen that was, you know, nice and bright, and I was under the impression that you, like, had to eat popcorn. I didn't really like popcorn. I was young and stupid. I don't know what was up with that. Anyways, wouldn't walk into a theater. Well, one day, my dad came up to me uh, at home, and he said something to, I don't remember the exact wording, but he said something to the effect of, Uh, So in a little bit, we as a family are going to go see Shrek 2 at the movie theaters uh, in just a little bit. So please get your shoes on and get in the car. Again, don't remember the exact, something to that effect. He wasn't harsh. He didn't raise his voice about it. But there was something in that little bit of news that made it very clear to me that refusal was not an option available. And it's also worth mentioning my dad knew I was afraid of movie theaters. Right? It wasn't addressed in anything. He said he didn't enable it. He didn't criticize it. He sat with it. But no. The focus, the narrative of what he was really telling me was, I'm asking you to do this with us as a family. And I'm asking you to prioritize the value of being with us ahead of your fears and insecurities. 
Now being in an age where several of my friends are themselves now parents of young children, I've heard lots of similar stories about their own dynamic with their kids. And funnily enough, almost all of them have said more or less the exact same thing, right? Sometimes the kids listen, sometimes they don't. And it's not like our family time is ruined when they don't listen, but gosh, it's so much easier when they do. Right? You might be familiar with that as a parent or even as your experience having been a kid. Sometimes that leads to immediate blessings for both the parent and the child. Obviously, I love Shrek too, and an obsession was born. Um, but the long-term blessing is so much stronger. Unity with the family, unity with your community, unity with the people around you. Treating the bond with your family and your loved ones as more important than your individual role in it. And that's where the thankfulness is coming from. God has placed so many people in our lives to laugh with, to cry with, to be together with. Maybe your family, friends, maybe even your you know, fellow students and coworkers if you're really feeling crazy, right? And it's much easier to be content despite feelings of despair when our thought process is, what response helps me be united with the people I love and the people I'm called to love? Sometimes that response is uncomfortable and maybe even painful. And those feelings are just as real and valid as anything else. And they're gonna continue to exist. But our calling is to place being one with others on the same level, really on a higher level. It's a difficult line to walk, but Paul actually models it for us um, in the back half of this chapter, Philippians 4. See, I, I specify the back half because the back half of this chapter, very different from the front half. Like to the degree where, you know, academic Bible scholars for a while was like, was this really the same letter? I think it might have just gotten tacked on to something else. See, in the back half, Paul takes a minute to respond to a gift that he received from the Philippians some time ago, a series of gifts um, as an aid to his ministry. Um, he was in a, a partnering relationship with the church in Philippi. And Paul was not typically known for accepting these sorts of gifts, but as we talked about, there's a sense that his relationship with the Philippians is a little different, and so he accepts support from them on a few occasions. And again, this had people confused for a while, unsure of really what, what, the, what the place of this whole diversion is in the, in the chapter, but at the end of the day, we can kind of think about it this way. If Paul is a teacher, and he's assigned a word problem to the class, in the first half of this chapter. We can look at the second half as Paul kind of doing a sample problem on the board, modeling for students how step-by-step step, the sort of thought processes and, and tricks and heuristics that are needed to arrive at a solution. Um, and unlike some of the math teachers I've had, they most likely had something to do with what's actually on the test, but I digress. He phrases this balance between joy and contentedness and present circumstances really powerfully um, with a really simple sentence. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He places himself in the middle of both of these, of both of these extremes, everything in between to illustrate that his ministry, his contentedness, isn't dependent on the gift itself. Right? That's how unconditional his trust in God's provision is. He can rejoice that a gift was given at all. That his, his 
unity with the church is that much stronger. He can rejoice and be thankful for the love from his church without having to be concerned with, okay, I'm more, I'm more liquid now, or I have the, I have the material prosperity can, to continue doing what I'm doing. He already has accepted that his needs are fulfilled or his needs will be fulfilled in a little bit. We understand now a little better what joy looks like for Paul, right? It's a function of contentedness and unity rather than just emotion or disposition. But sometimes it doesn't feel like enough, right? You're saying, you know, yeah, that's real cute, but I get along just fine with my family. I've always liked movie theaters and you're weird for ordering pickles on your burgers. Mm -hmm. But I've lost a loved one to the pandemic, or I've become so beaten down at my job that I don't know why I'm still even there. Or being a student right now just feels so much harder, um, if only because I can't safely get a hug from my friend. Being content by just trusting, that's not something I feel like I can do. Well, with Paul, there's always a, but wait, there's more moment. And right, and this point here is no exception. Because uh, Paul's very careful to let us know that this isn't just a wait-and-see proposition. It's not a passive activity. There is also a very active and deliberate role that we have to take in seeking out joy, seeking out this contentedness. He's already started to provide us with a foundation for that. Um, we saw in verses 5 and 6 when he instructs the church to pray about their anxieties and give thanks. Um, but then he goes on to offer a pretty curious and very well-known, perhaps, explanation that follows in verse 8 and 9. It goes like this. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, this here is kind of what Paul leaves them with, right? This is more or less his closing exhortation to the Philippians. And you listen to that, it sounds great. It's inspired a lot of really cool Sunday school songs, right? But it's hard to know what else to do with this sometimes. Because at first blow, it's just a super wordy, super repetitive way of saying, yeah, whatever, do good stuff and God will give you peace. See ya. But of course, if that's all he wanted to say, we'd have to ask ourselves, why not just say that? What do these qualities mean? Why do you keep listing so many? And well, the good news is all of these questions have a similar answer. You know, many commentators who have studied this passage have asked themselves a lot of these same questions. And pretty consistently, two words stick out above the rest, um, especially in the original Greek. They're these two, which I believe are on the screen right now. I'll just leave them up there. Um, and, you know, I'm sure we're all familiar with these words, the meaning of their application of the passage, completely self-known. So, in verse 8, we just read the phrase, think about these things, which in Greek includes a form of the word legizomai, usually like conjugated to legizotha, and I'm going to ask forgiveness on pronunciation here. Um, someone can text me with an IPA notation of how these work later on. It means to consider, but not just to consider, right? Not just to consider fleetingly or momentarily. It implies a form of wrestling really reasoning out with an idea, challenging it, chewing it up and digesting it. You may notice it has the same roots as the word logos, and I can feel the RET 105 flashbacks intensifying as we speak. The logos we perhaps know from that class and some of the ones 
It's the notion of making an argument, bringing forth factual claims, considering something for the purposes of understanding the truth of it. And then this other phrase, we said, practice these things. What you have learned and seen and heard received me, practice these things. We get a translation of that, the word um, present, I believe is how that's pronounced, uh, meaning to do, but also to practice. Again, not just momentarily, do it regularly as a recurring experience. So before getting into the weeds of what any of these words mean, right, Paul offers an even more basic instruction with just these two exhortations here on how we can find joy and, cont and contentment. We should find it not in the responses to things outside ourselves, but rather in the things that we ourselves can initiate. We can find it in things we choose for ourselves to meditate on and to dwell on, and even in the ways we choose for ourselves to spend our time and act on these meditations. But as far as what those things we should be dwelling on and what things we should be spending time on should be, Paul stays pretty vague, right? He gives us the list rotation, good, true, honorable, just, pure. Things are true, things are pure. And while no one was entirely sure what Paul is referring to specifically, it does seem pretty certain that Paul's like open-endedness isn't neglect his part. He's acknowledging that the specifics may change depending on which circumstances we're trying to find contentedness in. Remember, joy and contentedness go hand in hand for Paul with unity. And so we might fill in those blanks by asking the question, what can I do and what can I think about so that people would want to be unified with me? Always both, remember, because what we do will always be informed by what we think about over and over and what we think about will always be informed by what we do over and over. And it's also important to not take that question as a challenge to placate the culture, right? Our call as Christians is to follow Christ and not the things of this world that's still in play. But if we look at the list of principles here, whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is lovely, well, I think that's ultimately things anyone would hope for, believer or not, right? These aren't controversial or even necessarily counter-cultural ideas. And really, it is no different from Paul's other admonishments to live in the world and not of it, as they say, right? Other places in the New Testament command us to submit to the authorities and power that have, excuse me, submit to the authorities and powers that have sway over our communities. Even though they are not our final authority, God is. But God has placed those, those authorities and those powers in the dynamic with us. And so Paul's challenge to ask ourselves, do things that would make people want to be unified with us, that's really just a corollary of that mindset. So what might bring us truth in a world panicked by, near, by a nearly unprecedented global pandemic? Well, who knows? For some people, that might mean being diligent about the information we receive about the state of world health, rather than just taking the first headlines we see as fact, and then acting in accordance with that information. You know, we receive new information of this nature every day, particularly with vaccines beginning to be distributed. And so the litmus test for everything we do is, are we seeking truth in the things we think about? When we continue to do things like wear masks or get vaccinated or keep a distance from our loved ones who are at risk, do we do that out of love for these rules and the powers above us? Or do we do that out of love for other people and out of a desire to be with other people spiritually and one day hopefully physically soon? 
And the list goes on, right? In a world filled with systematic injustice, whatever is just might mean taking active steps to recognize ways you might be contributing to this injustice and wrestling with that internally. Whatever is pure may mean reevaluating a significant relationship in your life and being honest about whether or not the relationship fulfills both parties on the same level. Maybe it means seeking to eliminate a self-destructive attitude or behavior that may be hindering that fulfillment. Um, it's not escape notice that today is, is typically a day meant for celebrating um, particularly romantic relationships, but of any nature and every day, is that conversation being had? Are you, ask, are you asking yourselves, in what ways can I celebrate my partner or to the people who are, the people who are important to me in this world? We could sum this up by saying, are you thinking about things that people, whether they're believers or not, again, will think you're pretty cool for doing? And are you doing it often enough that it's producing actions where people will be like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting behind that. Like, I want, I want to see more of that in the world. We could say that, again, even though the world's perception should not rule our lives, one way we can find joy in the world is if the world is able to find joy in us. But Paul's vagueness serves another vastly more important purpose here, too. He lists these principles and these values and these qualities, rattles them off, um, and tries to be otherwise less specifically prescriptive beyond um, disqualifiers. Because the reality is doing this stuff is really hard. It's hard. It's not a linear process. We're going to slip. Um, because we live in a fallen world, but ultimately... Also, because like all of these things can be to us our ideals. We're imperfect people. We can, we can strive to do things that evoke goodness and justness and purity and loveliness. Um, but of course, only one person has ever inherently embodied them by who he is. And Paul knew that the Philippians would recognize that person as Jesus, as I'm sure we do as well. Jesus experienced pain, and not just on the cross, right? He wept at the loss of a friend. He raged at the misuse of his father's house. He lamented his fate in Gethsemane. And I have to imagine he felt despair um, and a level of sort of meaninglessness in what he was doing at times, having to teach a whole civilization a way of living so differently from how they had already known. He wasn't immune to the difficulties of the world, but he went away to pray and to fill himself with reminders of the goodness and faithfulness of his father. And then he went out and did things that drew people to his words in droves. And this immensely difficult act of struggling for contentedness gave him the power to be in ministry, even though he knew he was going to die a death he didn't deserve on the cross. So if we aren't entirely sure concretely what that might look like for our situation, Paul says, look to others. He encouraged the Philippians to think about and act on the need to guide people to Jesus as he has. This is what you've learned, received, and heard, and seen in me. He encourages them to think in terms of sacrificial love, as Jesus did. Maybe there's someone who has loved you really meaningfully in your life or served you in a time of need. Is there a way you could go out of your way to serve someone else and bless someone else in a similar way? Remember, as he's calling the Philippians up to this higher notion of joy and unity, Paul is doing his own sample problem on the board. He's modeling this for them in his response to their support of his ministry. And Paul, 
closes out this portion of his letter in a way which brings everything together. It gives an indication of some of the things Paul might have been thinking about and practicing as he shares this with the church. Aside from a few customary pleasantries and greetings at the end of the letter, Paul signs off with this in verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So let's go take this through the steps of our word problem, right? Inward joy. We start with inward joy. Paul's already at an amazing point in his faith walk, thankfully for us, where it's not even a question for him. And man, this is hashtag relation of goals with Christ right here. Paul's like, I'm good, man. I know God has already provided what I need and will continue to provide. But what else does he do with this, right? The joy he finds in the gift from Philippians, it's not that he's more liquid right now, right? It's that his bond, his unity with the Philippian church has grown deeper. And there's an element to this, too. It's not just about Paul. The church has learned what this unity means. We know that because they're supporting him. They're, they're walking alongside him in a very tangible and real way in the mission of sharing the gospel. They're already starting to grasp the concept. And what teacher doesn't love that aha moment when everything we've been trying to communicate to students suddenly clicks and students are able to do amazing things with it. Like my fellow teachers can attest, it's why we do what we do, or at least, you know, for most of us, right? And he praises the Philippians, outward direction. Goes out of his way to affirm their growth in following Christ and reminds them, and conversely himself, right, that the best is yet to come. You Philippians, he says, you've made this pursuit of Christ important to you. You've elevated it. Keep doing it. Come alongside your leaders. Help them in their conflict. Break away from your citizenship of the world. Be citizens of heaven. Rejoice despite my imprisonment. You can do all of this. You're justified in all of this because the Lord is at hand. So we started in with this notion of inward joy leading to outward direction. Two sort of vague sounding concepts that seem frankly downright quaint in a world lacking apparent joy or direction. But hopefully it's clear now through the end of this letter that Paul isn't promising a passive outcome here. A life centered in Christ isn't a function of pretending that the things that aren't Christ don't exist. But it is a call to take an active and deliberate role in seeking contentment and joy for ourselves in our current state so that we may then be that joy for others. Because that second bit, outward direction, is how Paul centers his life on Christ right there. A sacrificial focus on others, the same one that brought Jesus to the cross, which can only come about if we look to our own needs and our own fears and our own despair and say, my God will fulfill every need through his riches and power and glory in Christ Jesus. He justifies us pulling ourselves away from the prison of our own circumstances. And as we close today, we can take away this, right? Though we are not necessarily promised a path out of that imprisonment. God does not promise us, 
you know, rescuing from whatever we may find ourselves in. We are promised something richer though, a true center, a center that doesn't change, a center that will return the unconditionalness of our joy with unconditional peace and guidance and love. A true center that will stand against anything the world has to throw at it. A faithful and unchanging God. And we know God is faithful because he's fulfilled our most pressing need, salvation from this death our sin has earned us by sacrificing his son to die for us. And that is a thing more than worthy of praise that we can think about, that we can wrestle with. And we like to do this as a church uh, through the practice of communion. And Pastor Nick's going to come up now to talk more about that and lead us through.